Sincerity is not a test of truth. This is what Tyron Edwards said. He's a Puritan theologian. He goes on to say, nor evidence of correctness of conduct. You may take poison sincerely, believing it to be the need of medicine, but will it save your life? Sincerity, authenticity are valued and important. We do not like fake or insincere people. No one likes hanging out with them. We are drawn to sincere and real people. We are called to be sincere people. 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. We are called to be sincere in our faith with God. In Joshua 24.14 As Joshua is encouraging the people of Israel before he leaves, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and Egypt and serve the Lord. Sincerity is not the only requirement, though. It is not even the first requirement in worship. Worship is this, this we just say worship, well, this is what worship is, but worship literally means to bow down, to pay homage, to, to devote one's life to something else, to exalt and to give glory. We are to worship, and sincerity is not the first part of worship. It's an important part, but it's not the first part of worship. Psalm 62.7 says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Here's the point, is that you and I, have no glory in above ourselves. We are not glorious beings. We are, in fact, the exact opposite of glorious beings. And here it is, the psalmist actually says, hey, my glory actually is on God. It's his glory. He is the glory, and he is worthy of worship. And so the amazing thing about God is what he does at the cross, because we are unworthy He invites us to share in him, and he puts upon us his glory. He doesn't make us in of ourselves glorious, but he puts upon us this this alien righteousness. It is his righteousness he gives to us, which makes us into his glory. So when the psalmist says, hey, my glory, anything that I do right and I do well, anything that is praiseworthy of me is actually him. He's the glorious one. He's the one worthy of worship. And sincerity is required in our worship, but it's not the foundation of our worship. Sincerity is not the test of truth, nor is it the evidence of correctness of conduct in our worship. We can be sincerely wrong. This is what Jesus digs into with that woman, at the woman at the well. It's what he digs into scripture with the disciples. It's what he digs into in the Pharisees. And everyone that he encounters, he goes after. They think they're sincere. Everyone he deals with is sincere in what they believe in and what they hold as true. But he goes after that. He goes after our sincerity. He He doesn't doubt or go after that we are sincere. 
but he goes after what we actually worship. And so then he begins to speak about how to worship, and then he speaks about what to worship. And this is what he does with the woman of the well. He goes after how of the worship and what of worship. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. He tells us in this moment, now is the time to worship him in spirit and truth. Now is the time. Now is the time to worship God in spirit. That is the how. That is how you worship God, in the spirit. And now is the time to worship him in truth, which is the what of worship. That is what we're supposed to be worshiping, or who we are supposed to be worshiping. Let's turn to John 4, and let's dive into that right now. How was the nursery, Russ? What was it? <laughs> How was the nursery? <laughs> let's go. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was distracted. <laughs> John 4, 19 to 20. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Notice that she talks about where to worship. She's a Samaritan. I don't know if you remember the story, but she is a Samaritan. And Samaritans are remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel that was fallen, and they, they synergized their faith with the surrounding people. See, they are not like the Israelites. In fact, the normal Jewish people, right, but Jesus, was, they considered them worse. I mean, they were Gentiles, which is everyone besides the Israelites, and then there were Samaritans because they, they synchronized their faith with other faiths. They adopted. So they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't hold to the, the testament that the Jewish people held to or what Jesus held to. And they were considered half-breeds, unclean, and not part of God's people. Jewish people would normally ordinarily walk around their territory so they wouldn't have to encounter them. And the Samaritans believed they worshiped God or a God. And they didn't worship him in Jerusalem at the temple where the temple was. Right, and that's what she's talking about, right? So you think we ought to worship in Jerusalem, God? And says, but we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Shechem. And Mount Gerizim in Shechem is where Abraham first encountered with God. He built that, uh, the promise before he entered the promised land, he built that temple. And this is where they believe they ought to worship and encounter God. And that's what she's getting after. She's like, we're talking about the where of worship. You believe you're supposed to worship there, and we believe we're supposed to worship here. And notice what Jesus says to her. He engages the where of worship. He says, woman, believe me, which is actually a polite address. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is the hour is coming. And John, he uses that phrase over and over again, the hour. And the hour in John refers to, it points us all to the cross. It points us to Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension. That, that centerpiece of all of history, which everything hangs on to. It says, the hour is coming. But Jesus doesn't engage in the debate of where of worship. He's not interested in that debate. 
In fact, earlier in John, he's already talked about the temple and already talked about the where of worship because he goes into the temple, right? And he talks about the temple's gonna fall. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is already trying to reorient them. You don't worship God at the temple. You worship God where he's at. And Jesus is greater than the temple. In fact, and John talks about, right, he's come, the word of God, God in the flesh has come and moved into our neighborhood. He's tabernacled with us. Where, where Jesus is, is where God is. And that's where he worship. He's greater than the temple. So you can worship him on Mount Gerizim where he is right now with the woman in Samaritan. Because that's where he is. You ought to worship him there. You ought to worship him in Jerusalem. You ought to worship him on the road that he's at. You ought to worship when he is present. That's his point. And he's saying both places are really obsolete for worship. Because it's not really important where. It's the nature of how you worship and what you worship. There's no interest in the disagreement of where you worship because you both got it wrong. And then he says, Jews worship what we know. We are inside the revelation of God. We have, we have the whole revelation of God in the Old Testament. You, you ignore it though. You don't even know. You have worshiped something else and you worship what you don't know. You don't even know God. Jesus is concerned, not that the Samaritan woman is sincere about her worship. She, he knows she's sincere. But he's worried that she actually is not worshiping the right thing or the right one. And she's not actually worshiping God. In Psalm 76, 1, it says, In Judah, God is known. That's the southern tribe. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Now, we know this word known here is not just a cognitive understanding, right? The people all can have a cognitive understanding. This is about a covenant relationship, an intimate relationship with God. Judah and God are in this intimate relationship with him. And he's saying, you are not. You are not worshiping the right thing. And then he goes on. In verse 23, but the hour is coming and is here now. Now, what did I just tell you the hour we're referring to? Jesus is the cross, right? It's referring to the death and, and the resurrection and the ascension. He says, the hour is coming. And guess what? It's actually present right now. Now, this is a fascinating con- concept. Jesus is the death and resurrection and the ascension. Of all this of God's presence wherever he is even before the cross happens in historical time. He says this in John eleven twenty five. This is before the resurrection. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is before he's died. He says, I am the resurrection. You see, life in abundance happens where Jesus is present. This is who he is. This is his power. He is the everlasting God. He says the hour is coming and is now here. It's present. I am present. You see, the Father, God is on a search and rescue mission looking to create true 
worshipers of him. This is, what his, this is what God's doing from the beginning of Genesis until the very end. He's looking. This is, he is on a search and rescue mission to get people to properly worship the one who is glorious. The only one that has glory. The only one that is worthy. And he's getting them to do it properly. The what of worship and the how of worship. The how of worship is through the Spirit or by the Spirit. The what of worship is the truth. And the reason that he says for all of this, the reason is this, why we worship God in spirit and truth and, and how and what, he says because God is spirit. Now what does that mean? What does that mean that God is spirit? God is not a spirit, like we all have spirits or souls. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's saying, like, it's like God says, John says, God is love. Is that this is just a concept of love that's preimposed upon God? No, it's saying God is, and whatever God is, is love. God is light. It's not this concept of light that's presupposed on God. It's that God is, and everything radiates from him. God is spirit meaning he is not flesh and he's not human. He's beyond that. He's not like one of you and I. Isaiah 31.3 says it kind of in the opposite. The Egyptians are men, are man, and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. This kind of opposite of that there's, there's flesh and then there is spirit, there is men, and there is God, and God is not a man. He is much more than that. God is invisible and divine as opposed to human, which makes it very fascinating that this invisible divine God actually becomes flesh, becomes visible for us. It makes it a powerful story. Why does he do this? Because he wants us to know love. He wants us to know truth. He wants us to worship the right thing, the thing that is glorious, the thing that is worthy. He wants us to know him. He doesn't want to remain unknown, so he reveals himself to us. And then Jesus is the invisible God made visible. That's what incarnate means, in human flesh. Right? We, we know that John uses this word as that Jesus is the word. That Jesus is this invisible God made visible, which the word is, this, this, this word logos is the truth, the reason, the purpose, and this philosophical idea of the center of the whole universe. The reason for the universe. God is. The foundation of our worship is not where. It's not in our sincerity. It's in how we worship in spirit and it's in the what we worship, in truth. Let me explain this a little further. The what we worship, the what we worship, the truth, is Jesus. The what we worship, the proper thing to worship, the proper one to worship is the truth, which is and who is Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the whole 
point of these gospels, the whole point of the good news is to reveal Jesus, to reveal that Jesus is God, that he is this invisible God made visible to us. The beginning of this dialogue with this woman, do you remember what she called him? She said, you're a prophet. Now, she's not thinking of a prophet that has, gets a word from God and is one of these prophets in the Old Testament. She's thinking of a prophet as someone who has divine knowledge or has divine insight, who's, who's special. You're unique. There's something different about you. And she calls him a prophet. And then immediately as she calls him a prophet, he switches the conversation into worship. And to where to worship, and to what, and to who. Samaritans are worshiping an unknown and false God. This woman is not worshiping the true God. And here he is, the true God, the truth, standing right in front of her. He doesn't belittle her about that. He engages her. He's trying to get her to worship God, to worship the truth, to worship him. At the end of the conversation, what does she call him? Messiah. Messiah. The the Savior, the Jewish concept of Savior in John 4, 21. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I want you to understand that a Samaritan wouldn't use that term, Messiah. That's not the term they would ever use. That is, a, that is a, a Jewish term to refer to the one who is to redeem or to save them. And, and the, the Jewish people had this political concept of Messiah, which Jesus goes after a little bit later. But what they, they would use, the word that they would use would be tahib. Tahib is what they would refer to. And tahib would be the restorer of all things. Or even more so, this is really fascinating, is the one who would come and explain all things. The one who would come and explain all things. And notice what she says at the end of the story when she refers to Jesus. Right? She actually says, are you the Messiah? Are you the one he will tell all things? And at the very end, when she goes and tells the rest of her, the town, look at the one who told me all things about myself. Because this is her understanding of what the Messiah, a God's anointed one, would do. And Jesus actually does that for her because before she's identified that you've been married to five men that the one previous right right now is not even your husband tell her things that no one knows about her or no one could know about her this is, i just want you to understand this side note how jesus meets you where you're at he always he knows where you're at And he's willing to go down there. And the proof of that is that the invisible God enthroned in the high heavens is willing to come down and put on human form and reside in this muck. In this inglorious muck. He's willing to meet people where they're at because he loves us. And he wants to to lift us up out of this. And then Jesus says to her in John uh, 4.26, Jesus said to her, I, when she says, you're the Messiah, he goes, I who speak to you am he. That's an incredible thing. Most often when you talk, when you read, Jesus doesn't really identify who he is to people. But she's not a, a Jewish person, so she doesn't have a misconcept of Messiah as they would. She has a different misconception. And he tells her directly, I am the Messiah 
But notice the words that you, in John, we have these things called the I am statements. There's these seven I am statements, which are profound. I am the resurrection of life, right? These incredible things. And these I am statements are, the, in, in, the, in the Greek language, it actually is a redundancy of I. It's, a, it's an odd way to actually do it because the verb actually includes the I, it's a whole language thing. And so it's a very redundant thing. So in, and what Jesus does in these I am states, he says, I, I am which refers back to I am, to the personal name of God, which, which God revealed to Moses. I am the great I am. It's God's name. And so this does this in John seven times, these I am statements. This right here is the eighth I am statement. It doesn't directly say I am together, but in the Greek it actually does. It says, I am the Messiah. I am he. I am God. I am the truth. I am the living one. I am the one you ought to worship right now, is what he's saying to her. I am the truth. That's the what of worship. Jesus is the what and the who of worship for all people, all the time, including right now. And then he goes after the how of worship, in in truth and in spirit, and the how of worship in spirit. How do we worship Jesus? We worship him, not in our spirit, but in his spirit, the Holy Spirit. The only way we can worship God is through his Holy Spirit, not ours. It's his gift that he gives. I want you to understand that the gift of God is on the cross. For he so loved the world, he gave himself. Jesus died on the cross to make us right with him, to pay the penalty of our sins. And he gives us his righteousness, his glory on the cross. In that moment, once and forever, it's done. But that's not the only gift he gives us. The gifts he gives his people, his children, is his spirit. Because you and I know, sitting right here, even though we profess and we believe in Jesus and we may love him, we are still broken people, aren't we? I mean, we have these incredible, every day and every moment, we turn away from him. But the gift that he gives us, because he knows we're not complete, is his spirit, because you and I cannot worship him in our own ability. It's not possible. You can't one day think, you know what, in my own strength, in my own ability, I'm going to worship God. That's his gift that he gives to you to worship the right one, the right thing, the truth. That's his gift. Not only the forgiveness of sins, not only his righteousness, but his spirit that indwells in us and begins to change us from the inside out. His Holy Spirit, John 16, 7. 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to, to your advantage that I go away, Jesus says. For, I do not, for if I do not go away, the helper the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus knows in this moment, he's like, listen, this may sound heretical. Jesus is not enough for you to worship. He's the one you ought to worship. But he knows that he needs to give us his spirit in order for us to be proper worshipers of God, to be proper children of God. And yet he, he, he is the one that gives it. He's the one that gives of himself, and he is the one that gives us of his spirit. In John 1, 33, John the Baptist says, 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, God, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says, look, this is not in my ability, but the God who told me about Jesus told me, like, listen, Jesus, is the, he's the one that has the power. I baptize with water, but he gives his spirit. He gives God's spirit to people. Now, it is not a spirit that is a tool for us to use. It's not something we put in our belt and we pull out God's spirit when we need to do something very godly. That's not the gift. That's not the gift at all. God is not something that we wield and utilize. It is a gift that begins to transform us inside and out, our character. We are new beings because we have the spirit. The old is dead and the new is being resurrected in us. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, born with the Holy Spirit, that's all that's implied in there, one cannot see the kingdom of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, if it's not given to you, you can never see the kingdom of God and you can never see the king. The apostles, Peter, all of them, would not recognize Jesus in the resurrection until he revealed him, until the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. He was hidden, and so was the kingdom. During their time with him before his death, they didn't understand because it wasn't revealed to them. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. This is the Holy Spirit, this is the same word. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God is Spirit. You cannot apprehend God, but you cannot deny him either, much like you can't apprehend the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. It is the gift of the Spirit. It is his gift. In John 4.10, Jesus answered him, if you knew the gift of God, and what it is that I'm saying to you, give me a drink, would you have asked me? And he, would ha- and he would have given the living water. What is he talking about? He goes on to say it to this woman. And Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water, of water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Does this woman do anything to merit this gift? It's just something that Jesus freely offers. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, you will never thirst for anything else again. You will be completely satisfied. In John 7, 38, 39, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of uh, living water. The same reference. Now, that he ha- now this he said about the Spirit. He makes it clear. This living water, this thing that flows, is the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. As yet, for, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's what I say, it's not been given. There's all counts in the Old Testament where the Spirit engages 
with people and the pe- people have the Spirit for a moment and it goes. It's a gift. But the gifting of the Holy Spirit indwells with us, stays with us. It doesn't come and go. That's a gift that lasts. Now you may re- reread this passage like, ah, so I receive the Holy Spirit when I believe. That's what this one singular passage you might imply from that. But that's not the whole accounting of Scripture. If you read the whole accounting of Scripture, it's not that if you merit and do something, you then will receive the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a chicken and egg thing here, just in this passage. right? Do I believe and then receive the Holy Spirit, or do I have the Holy Spirit and then believe? The whole account of Scripture would tell you you don't believe unless you have the Holy Spirit. Unless the gift is given to you first, then you will believe. Case in point, First uh, Corinthians twelve three. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. One has to have the Holy Spirit to say Jesus is Lord. Now, it doesn't mean if someone just says Jesus is Lord, it has the Holy Spirit. I don't know that. I can say a lot of things, right? You don't know my sincerity. I don't know the sincerity in your heart. I don't know if you're speaking in the Holy Spirit when Jesus is Lord, but I know if you truly believe that Jesus is Lord, you cannot do that unless the Holy Spirit has given you that gift of rebirth. It's, it's a little bit what we just did here this morning. Right? This baptism of water, right? This baptism of water, I don't want to surprise any of you or shock any of you. I do not have the gift of giving God's Spirit away. It's not in my ability. I did not give the Holy Spirit to Amelia. Now, may have the Holy Spirit may already entered Amelia? Maybe. Did he enter in that moment? Maybe. It is not my power. We baptize, and I said it very clearly, we baptize Amelia into the visible church. This is the sign and seal that she belongs to the visible church. Now we know in Scripture there are sheep and wolves in the visible church. There are those that do not actually believe that are in the visible church. They may look like they believe, but they actually don't believe. And you and I will never know that until the end. You can be assured about what you believe. You can know if you have the Spirit. That's between you and God. God baptizes, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit into the invisible church. A sign and seal into God's kingdom. That's what he does. That's what the difference, that's how we understand what this baptism was. Amelia belongs to the visible church of God and we'll raise her in the faith. God's gift is this Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings us to the truth. And the truth draws us to the Spirit. It's this cycle in us that grows. Right, it's, it's the, the, the Holy Spirit, the how of worship, brings us to the proper thing, the proper who, the proper God to worship, the only God. The gift, God gives us his Holy Spirit in order that we may worship him and him alone. No one else could draw us closer or draw us to God, but God himself. And yet, Jesus is the one that also gives the Spirit that draws us closer to him, it's a cycle in us. The Spirit draws us closer to the truth, and the truth draws us to the Holy Spirit. 
over and over again. Jesus is said in, in John 3:34 is the spirit is the one who has the spirit without measure. Because it's he it's his spirit. Jesus freely gives us his spirit himself the how to worship to properly worship the right thing the what of worship the truth the spirit always points us to the truth always points us to Jesus the gospel the gospel is about reoriented us and our misdirected and our misguided worship this is what god is doing for us he's like okay you are way off the mark which literally what sin means. And I am putting you on the right track with my spirit, worshiping me. This is what God does for us. This is the good news. It's not what we do for ourselves. This is God's gift. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit to direct us to worship him. Because of Jesus, we can worship the Father through the Spirit. Jesus justifies us. He makes us right so we can stand before the Father. The Father and the Son gives us their Holy Spirit so we can actually worship and believe in him. We cannot worship God sincerely without God giving us a sincere heart to worship him. Period. We cannot worship God sincerely unless God gives us the true knowledge of who he is by his Holy Spirit. We are a people that God has found to worship him. To worship him in truth, in Jesus, and to worship by and through the Holy Spirit, his spirit. You see, this is all this triune God, this one God. The how and what of worship. This is the foundation. This the foundation. It's not the where. It is the how and the what of worship. This doesn't mean, in spirit and truth, that we get to worship God any way we want. I hope we begin, as I went through the beginning of the scriptures, that you understand that is not true at all. It is not true at all. God is the one that tells us how you ought to worship him. And it starts with the how in a spirit that directs us to the proper one to worship, him, Jesus, the truth. Sincerity is not the test of worship. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the test and the means of worship. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you and I am humbled that you give us a sincere heart. That you find us lost and broken people. And you give us your spirit. Your Holy Spirit. That you renew and restore us to proper worship. To proper relationship. Lord, there's only one thing we can do is to give you thanks. To give you praise for this mercy and for this good news. Lord, help us as this mission that you've called us to find others, to show them the what of worship, to show them Jesus. And Lord, may you give them the how or the Holy Spirit, and so they may worship you. Give them the Spirit, Lord, and show them the truth. 
you'll reveal knowledge of who you are. Lord, help us to enter into this mission and see the kingdom of God and see you present with us now and forever. Amen.